Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. Today, we'll be discussing pediatric subglottic stenosis. Thanks for being here, Dr. Balakrishnan. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Alyssa. So when thinking about pediatric subglottic stenosis, I think probably the first thing that we should do is define the subglottis. So the subglottis is, as you know, part of the larger structure of the larynx, which could be divided into the supraglottis, the glottis, and the subglottis. Uh, the subglottis itself anatomically starts at the inferior arcuate line, kind of on the undersurface of the vocal folds, and it extends to the inferior border of the conus elasticus. Now, you're not going to see the conus terribly clearly on endoscopy or anatomically unless you're dissecting. So another way to define that is simply as the inferior border of the cricoid cartilage. And so then how do we define subglottic stenosis? Subglottic stenosis is any narrowing of the subglottis, whether that is from an intraluminal process or a cartilaginous or external process, anything that narrows the lumen of the subglottis. So when someone has subglottic stenosis, how do they typically present to your clinic? So let's remember that most of these patients are going to be young children, and uh, unlike adult patients or older patients, you can't really ask them their symptoms. So some of it involves some careful interviewing of the caregivers, uh, and some of it involves a careful examination of the patient. Children are very good at hiding significant airway narrowing and airway pathology, especially young children. So you can have kids present with almost no symptoms at all or very subtle symptoms, and so it takes a a good alert mind and a high index of suspicion uh, to start hunting these symptoms down. Uh, If we kind of look for common stuff, Strider is one very common thing. As you know, Strider is just noisy breathing related to turbulent airflow. Um, if things are are narrowed enough, then you can think about things like retractions or increased work of breathing, use of accessory muscles, uh, respiratory distress more generally. But the symptoms can extend beyond that. So you can also have difficulty feeding. Uh, babies, as you know, have a tough time coordinating suck, swallow, breathe almost in general. Uh, And so if you throw a wrench in the works and they have trouble breathing, then they're going to have potentially trouble feeding as well. Sometimes, depending on the etiology, they can also have voice problems. So what are some of the other important questions that you ask parents in the clinic when you're evaluating this type of patient? So as uh, I think a good thing to keep in mind with any problem in children is that you have to look back really to the beginning of their life. And the beginning of their life means in utero as well. So you have to find out about the pregnancy. You have to find out whether they were born at term. Did they require any airway intervention uh, at birth, whether that be oxygen, CPAP, intubation, so on? Um, That history of intubation is really important. And uh, when you look at the studies out there, uh, some of the predictive factors for having significant subglottic narrowing uh, in kids include history of longer intubations, um, though we don't know exactly how long counts as long in kids. Recurrent intubations and prematurity, of course, would be common things to ask about. So it sounds like a history of intubation is a pretty key risk factor for developing this. What other sort of etiologies do you think about when you're thinking about why a child may have developed subglottic stenosis? Sure. So, uh, you know, you can use your um, Vindicate or kittens or whatever your mnemonic that you like to use is to break down a differential diagnosis, but. Uh, things you want to think about there are infectious causes. So infectious causes would be things like croup, 
inflammatory causes, reflux, eosinophilic esophagitis, things like that. Uh, you could think about airway trauma, previous airway surgery. And then you could think about other things like vascular malformations and other congenital masses. You know, And then keep in mind too that intubation can cause subglottic stenosis in a variety of ways. And we can talk about that in a little more detail as well. So please tell me about those ways. Yeah. So how does intubation cause subglottic stenosis? Well, you know, the common way that we all probably think of at first is edema, right? You have a piece of plastic running through the airway that shears back and forth and causes injury or inflammation. But if the tube is large enough or if the cuff is inflated big enough, it can exert significant pressure against the mucosa of the airway. And you all recall that the subglottis is the narrowest part of the airway in the normal pediatric airway. And so you have the endotracheal tube pushing against this closed ring of the cricoid cartilage. And if the pressure is greater than the perfusion pressure of the capillaries in the mucosa, you can get local ischemia and potentially necrosis or erosion. And when the body tries to heal that, you can get granulation, you can get fibrosis, you can get scar and narrowing. So that's kind of the, the, the standard or textbook way, but then there are other ways too. So for instance, you can get subglottic cysts as a result of intubation. Now that's not formally subglottic stenosis, but it can cause very similar symptoms. And that's also a potential sequela of intubation. So just worth keeping on your differential. So say a, a patient comes in and they are or have a history pretty convincing for subglottic stenosis. When you're thinking about workup, is there any role for radiology or other testing? Yeah, there absolutely is. So history and physical, as with uh, as with any uh, condition, is is the mainstay. Uh, you know, taking you all the way back to William Osler, I guess. But beyond that, yes. So clinical laryngoscopy is certainly a useful tool uh, if done carefully. Can be done very safely in neonates and preemies and so on. In addition to that, you can think about imaging. Imaging is a little tougher because plain films of the airway can demonstrate significant airway narrowing, but they can also be deceptive. Uh, for instance, if the child is crying or vocalizing right when the film is shot, uh, the subglottis can look narrower. The other option is things like CT or other multiplanar imaging, uh, but that would require you typically to sedate a child or to have them lie flat. And in some cases, that's not going to be a safe thing to do. Of course, if you intubate them for the scan, then it's going to obscure your findings. So Imaging can be useful, not always. Uh, a new technology that may be coming around is ultrasound. Uh, a lot of folks are studying that, and that may become a useful tool for subglottic stenosis, uh, as it has become for things like vocal fold immobility. So going back briefly to your physical exam when you're seeing the patient in clinic or even maybe in the inpatient consult setting, what are some of the things that you're specifically looking for on physical exam when you're evaluating these patients? Yeah, so anytime you're evaluating a patient with a potentially life-threatening condition, such as airway stenosis, you want to start with your primary survey. It's just like a trauma survey. You do your ABCs. If the child is stable enough to continue your assessment, then you continue on and you're going to do your more thorough physical exam. And that's going to start with a good head and neck exam, looking for things like syndromic features that may predispose the child to airway narrowing, uh, looking for signs of respiratory distress, things like cyanosis, flaring of the nose, head bobbing, retractions, use of accessory muscles. You're going to look at the skin for things like vascular lesions. Uh, children who have a so-called beard distribution hemangioma, for instance, especially if it's an infantile hemangioma, can have 50% or more rate of airway involvement. 
Uh, and if they have large segmental hemangiomas, like in face syndrome, it can be much higher than that. You want to listen as well as using your eyes. So listening for strider, is it inspiratory or expiratory or biphasic? Or, you know, in some cases, the stenosis is really bad. Does the child not have strider because they don't have enough airflow? Uh, you want to listen to their cry if they have one or not. And what does it sound like? Is it hoarse or is it strong? Those would all be good things to look at up front. Uh, and then it's always good to listen to the chest and the heart. I know a lot of us forget how to use a stethoscope, but actually that can be incredibly useful uh, to reveal associated pathology that might affect your management and decision-making. Awesome. And then going back to laryngoscopy, what specifically are you looking for when you're uh, you know, scoping these patients? Are you only looking at the supraglottis? Can you see the subglottis? Hmm, great question. So I think really laryngoscopy in any child should be a total upper airway assessment. Um, it's really easy to zoom past important findings higher up in the airway and miss them because you're so focused on the glottis or subglottis, for instance. So I think here it's really key to look at both sides of the nose, make sure there's nothing obstructing the nose or, you know, nasolacrimal duxus, coenal atresia that could confound your assessment of the child's breathing. Uh, look at the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, tongue base, hypopharynx, you know, all those things are important to document. When you get down to the hypopharynx, look for things like pooled secretions that might suggest aspiration risk or sensation problems. And then you focus on the larynx. And to look at the larynx, yeah, you want to look at the supraglottis. You want to look at the uh, glottis itself. Are the cords moving? Is there any stenosis at either of those locations? Is there a web? Then you want to try to get a glance at the subglottis. And that, you know, you can be done with varying degrees of success depending on the patient and your endoscopic skill. But a lot of times you can at least get a rough idea of what the subglottis looks like and whether there are any red flags for significant narrowing. But you also have to be honest with yourself, both in reporting your findings to uh, attendings and in documenting. If you don't get a good view of the subglottis, then you have to be aware of that too. So it sounds like most of these kids end up needing to go to the OR to get a good view of the subglottis. You know, depending on the child, you can do clinic subglottoscopy or tracheoscopy. It has to be done carefully in the right patient, but certainly... Um, older kids, you know, seven and older, if they're very cooperative, you can have them inhale topical lidocaine and actually do a good tracheoscopy. And um, there are some reports of doing that in very young children, in infants even, where you just kind of zoom through the cords when they take a breath and zoom back out and review the recorded video later to actually get the details. Uh, I've done that a couple times. <laughs> I can't say I felt particularly thrilled about it because if the child has a laryngospasm, you got to make sure you have the right rescue equipment around. The other limitation is that you can't really size the airway, and we'll talk about that in a minute, I know. Um, and you can't really look for secondary airway lesions as effectively in the clinic, I think. So for those patients where you want to size the airway and you want to get a closer look, we typically go to the OR. And can you just talk briefly about you know, the differences between the rigid versus the flexible evaluation and all of the different types of evaluation that we should be doing in the operating room? That's a superb question. So the two methods, flexible and rigid airway endoscopy, they offer complementary strengths. Uh, and that's the reason we often will do both in these children, uh, sometimes in collaboration with our pulmonology colleagues. So the flexible endoscopy, if it's done skillfully, can give you a huge amount of information about the structure of the airway. But the real strengths are that it allows you to see the dynamics of the airway because you're not stenting or suspending the airway at all. And so you can look for things like malacia with the respiratory cycle. You can look at for vascular compression or pulsatility. And if you don't have an angled rigid scope, 
like a 30 or 70, sometimes the flex can give you a better view of the anterior commissure. The other thing that the flex allows you to do is, again, to look at the upper airway, essentially do, do a drug-induced sleep endoscopy to make sure there are no upper airway sites of obstruction. Uh, flex also gives you the ability to do things like bronchoalveolar lavage and to look out into third and fourth generation bronchi that are hard to get to with the rigid. The rigid endoscopy, on the other hand, in other words, microdirect laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy, allows you to really look for anatomic detail. The quality of the optics right now is better, though I suspect that that difference will shrink over time as technology improves. It allows you to palpate areas of the airway to get some tactile feedback, for instance, looking at mobility of the cricoarytenoid joints. Uh, it allows you to instrument the airway to actually perform procedures like balloon dilation uh, or injections. Um, and so these are really complementary procedures. So that ability to palpate seems like it could be pretty useful for something like subglottic stenosis when there could be a membranous versus a cartilaginous you know, area of stenosis. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So you can look at the airway and you can see a narrowing, but as you say, Alyssa, the challenge is to figure out why it's there and what's causing it. So with palpation, you can look at things like, is it soft edema that sort of squashes out and comes back as you watch? Uh, is it firm cartilaginous? Is it membranous? You can get an idea of the length of the stenosis a little bit with palpation as well. Uh, and those are very useful things. We'll talk a little bit, I think, about the etiology of these things, but um, palpation certainly helps to differentiate that. And then looking at the severity of stenosis, how are we going about grading that and actually having objective numbers to be able to apply a grade to something like this? So that is a, a complex question in some ways. A, a lot of people, um, me included, uh, we use the Meyer Cotton grading system, which uh, many of the listeners will be familiar with, essentially grades subglottic stenosis one through four, with one being the mildest and four being the most severe. And if we kind of walk through those, a grade one is up to a 50% narrowing. A grade two is 51 to 70% narrow. Grade three is 70 to 99% or 71 to 99%. And grade four means there's no lumen whatsoever. We'll use the same grading system for a lot of other areas of stenosis in the airway, but really it's only been studied in the subglottis. And if we look back at uh, Dr. Meyer and Dr. Cotton's original paper, they actually correlated that percentage with the patient's age and the size of endotracheal tube that fit through the subglottis with an air leak at 20 centimeters water pressure. And so you can use that to estimate the percentage narrowing and then assign a grade to that narrowing. And so how do we determine exactly what size endotracheal tube should fit a specific patient? Again, lots of different tools. Some people will just say, look at the diameter of the child's pinky finger. Uh, some people will use the Braslow tapes, but the really common way is to do a little bit of math. You take the patient's age in years, you divide it by four, and you add four. In other words, a child who's two years old, divide that by four, you get 0 0.5. Add four, you should have a 4.5 endotracheal tube, keeping in mind that that number 4.5 reflects the inner diameter of the tube, and we are talking about using cuffless endotracheal tubes here. So with all this palpation and manipulation and sizing of the airway, it sounds like that could potentially cause some edema or worsening of the stenosis. It certainly can, and so you want to be careful. Um, ways to do this, you know, we'll commonly give these children perioperative steroids, uh, zero, 0 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of dexamethasone with a max of 10 uh, milligrams. But really, it's about good technique more than anything. So starting with a smaller tube, having good control of the airway with your laryngoscope, 
uh, not forcing the tube unless you really know what you're doing, and uh, kind of generally treating the airway with respect. Post-extubation uh, or post-procedurally, you can consider things like cool mist, racemic epinephrine, further steroids, but some of it is also just being cognizant of the fact that you might induce a little bit of edema, cause a little bit of post-procedural strider, and being comfortable with that uh, and knowing which patients are worthy of further monitoring or inpatient admission, for instance, afterward to keep an eye on them. So moving on to a treatment uh, approach, how do you approach these patients and determine the different treatment options that are best for a specific patient? Great question. That's a you know good two-year fellowship and lifetime of learning to sum up, but I think, you know, we break it down and loop back a little bit. It really comes down to what's the cause in some ways. So this might be a good time to take a second to discuss the etiologies of subglottic stenosis. The common way to break it down is congenital versus acquired. And I think that's a really important distinction. So congenital subglottic stenosis, some people have defined it as a diameter of four millimeters or less in a full-term neonate. Um, I would say, Sure, that's fine, but it really matters what's the functional impact on the child and what's their airway sizing. You know, you have to account for their prematurity and their body size and so on as well. So I think just setting an arbitrary cutoff of four is not necessarily all that useful. But if the child has a subglottic narrowing and there's no history of intubation, that is really the criterion for congenital narrowing. It's, it's probably a lot more common than we think for kids to have congenital narrowing. A lot of kids are probably running around with some mild grade one congenital subglottic narrowing and we would never know because they're not very symptomatic. That said, if we look at kids, for instance, who have recurrent croup with no history of intubation, somewhere under 10% of them will have a significant, let's say, grade two or more subglottic narrowing based on the literature. So it's definitely out there. Um, There are different types of congenital stenosis as well. So commonly it's cartilaginous, where you have, instead of a nice circular cricoid ring, you have either a more elliptical cricoid, which causes a medial lateral narrowing, or you can have a trapped first ring where the first tracheal ring sits under the anterior cricoid and causes an AP narrowing. Um, Or you can have a membranous narrowing where you have fibrous soft tissue thickening uh, and some hyperplastic mucus glands in the submucosal tissues. Um, And that's typically more of a circumferential narrowing. The other big group, of course, is acquired, which is probably a lot more common, uh, at least in terms of kids who are diagnosed. Um, And that's typically due to intubation, as we've discussed, about 90% of kids who have acquired intubation have this iatrogenic narrowing from intubation. We've talked a little bit about how the tube can cause uh, subglottic stenosis and why the subglottis is particularly vulnerable because it is the narrowest part of the pediatric airway and is the only complete cartilaginous ring. But the other issues are that the area of the conus and the submucosa in that area is more loose and so it can become edematous very quickly and that you transition there to this pseudostratified ciliated columnar respiratory epithelium uh, that doesn't hold up maybe as well as the squamous epithelium of the cords. There's some suspicion that in these kids they can have overlying infections or bacterial colonization uh, that can contribute to narrowing and of course things like reflux can do it in older kids, autoimmune disease, Uh, neoplasms, caustic ingestions, of course, and thermal injuries from smoke inhalation can do it as well. Uh, So a lot of different things can cause acquired stenosis. And and the reason I went through that in some detail was that really the cause may lead you to your decisions about surgical management. And just to give you an example before we get into this in detail, a kid who has a congenital subglottic narrowing is, I think, less likely to respond, for example, to balloon dilation because that kid is going to have a narrow, small, or thick cricoid cartilage 
And so it's not just a matter of stretching out the mucosa and squashing the submucosa. So are those kids that you would be more likely to recommend conservative management or do you take all of them to the operating room to do more advanced surgical procedures for them? Yeah. So, you know, the congenital kids, again, I would say less than 10% need any sort of reconstruction or actual intervention. And even the kids with acquired stenosis, interestingly, there was a nice paper from South Africa where they looked at resource limited settings where a lot of kids with acquired stenosis, as long as it was, as it was grade two or milder, uh, a lot of them could just get by with a tracheostomy to bypass their narrowing. Uh, and as they grew, they tended to outgrow the problem and not need a significant intervention beyond the trach. That said, I think typically the, the congenital stenosis kids are more likely to outgrow the problem over time than the acquired stenosis kids. So who does need surgery? Surgery is really driven by symptoms more than anything. It is um, a situation where the history and the exam really mesh with the endoscopic findings to help that decision. Kids, as you can imagine, who need surgery are typically going to have more severe stenosis or the ones who put more demand on their airway, whether that means they're very active. We've had patients, for instance, who were uh, Division One college athletes who had undiagnosed stenosis, but when they started really you know, putting a lot of demand on their airway, that's when they started to notice it. But typically, the more severe the case, the more likely they are to need surgery. And are there different surgical options for patients? Are you doing this all endoscopically? There's a huge range of options, both endoscopic and open. And regardless of the approach, endoscopic versus open, I think we can break down the strategy. I mean, there's really a few buckets we can put it into, right? So the first bucket is endoluminal strategies, things like balloon with adjuvant interventions that we can talk about. Another one would be expansion. So that would be things like cricoid splits and uh, cartilage graft laryngotracheoplasty. Uh, there's resection of the narrow segment. So that would be things like cricotracheal resection. And then there's bypassing it with tracheostomy. So those would be kind of the major categories. So let's start with the dilation techniques, endoscopic or endoluminal techniques. What sort of approaches do you use as far as ballooning versus... Uh, incising or excising the tissue? Yeah, so patient selection is really key here, though you can apply these to a lot of different patients in special circumstances. But, you know, the ideal patient, I would say, is somebody with a mature stenosis that is somewhat soft, that's thin and membranous and web-like. That's perfect for this. Um, But you can, again, use it on a lot of different people. Um, Balloon dilation alone uh, works fairly well on those thin web-like stenoses. On the firmer stenoses, thicker stenoses, more extensive or complex stenoses, you might want to add other things. So for instance, you may want to make radial incisions uh, in the stenosis to essentially break the scar and direct the tearing that you're creating with the balloon. Our adult colleagues are big fans of laser in these sorts of situations. In the pediatric world, uh, it's kind of a mix. Some people have strong feelings one way or the other. I tend to err on the side of using cold steel like a blitzer knife or scissors to do that. Uh, only because I feel like there's less collateral damage and collateral inflammation uh, and induction of new scarring processes. Uh, If you do use laser, uh, again, there's lots of different variations. CO2 would be the most common. KTP is sometimes used, uh, though dense scar is not always super vascular and amenable to that. Um, So lots of choices. And then you can do things like inject steroids, apply mitomycin C, and do other adjuvant medical therapy locally to prevent recurrence of the scar. Do you use steroids and mitomycin C for all your patients? Or is, again, that a select patient population that you would use that in? I'm pretty liberal with the steroids. Uh, I think there's not much risk uh, or 
cost to the patient in terms of injecting a depot of steroids, especially if it's into the subglottis and not into the vocal cords. Um, mitomycin, I'm a lot more selective about. Uh, I use it very rarely for the patients who have really recalcitrant or refractory stenosis where I'm trying very hard to avoid an open operation. And for steroids, you mentioned injecting. Do you ever use topical steroids instead or do you always inject? If I'm dilating, I'll usually inject if I'm thinking steroids are going to be helpful. But then on top of that, you can do topical steroids with things like inhaled or nebulized steroid. Um, But I'm just not convinced that taking a pledget and holding some steroid on there uh, for a few seconds is going to allow enough of it to get into the deep tissues uh, to make a big difference. So for someone who maybe has a little bit more stenosis than could potentially be addressed with dilation. Moving on to expansion or reconstruction, can we talk a little bit about the cricoid split that you had mentioned previously? Yeah. So in young children, especially whose airways tend to heal quickly and fill in well with fibrous tissue, if you have a subglottic narrowing or potentially bilateral vocal fold immobility as well, you can do an endoscopic cricoid split, typically an anterior and posterior split endoscopically, or an open anterior split uh, to essentially enlarge the cricoid ring and let that gap fill in with scar. Uh, typically, those kids need to be intubated for 10-ish days afterwards to support the airway and prevent the scar from moving inward to narrow the lumen. If you're doing an anterior split, does that have any side effects or adverse effects on the voice? Well, you want to be very careful not to bring the split through the anterior commissure, in which case it certainly could compromise voice. As long as the split is kept below the anterior commissure, uh, it should not affect the voice in any significant way. And then moving on to the various materials that you can use for the split, do you always have to use any sort of grafting material on the split? And if you do use a material, what are you using? So you don't always have to, but I think once you get beyond infancy, uh, you generally need to put something into that split to hold it open. The uh, common, most common material used is cartilage, typically autologous rib cartilage, uh, because you can get a lot of it. It's nice and thick, so you can carve it into the appropriate shape for an anterior-posterior graft and shape it and suture it. Um, however, there certainly are good outcomes with things like auricular cartilage, thyroid ala cartilage, um, Thyroid ala cartilage and auricular cartilage, as well as nasal septal cartilage, in my mind, are too thin to carve effectively. So you typically are going to use those as more like a cap graft to just provide some sort of scaffold for more rapid healing of a split. Whereas the thicker rib cartilage can be carved into a graft that actually holds the split open and fills that gap. You can also use uh, allograft. So people have used cadaveric cartilage. And then um, in some cases for a posterior split, especially, we've used things like absorbable spacers, like foldable folded absorbable craniofacial plates. Um, Those are a little controversial and not super well studied, but it's another choice. And then what about stents? Do you ever use any stents? Yeah. So stenting is an important concept here. uh, The idea is that you provide an internal support for the airway while it heals. So that brings us, I think, to an important concept of single versus double stage reconstruction. And then we can talk about types of stents there. So the idea here is that you're using essentially a tube or solid cylindrical stent to hold the reconstruction. This is different than, let's say, a balloon expanded or wire mesh stent uh, that you might put lower down in the airway, for instance. Um, So a single stage operation, the idea is that there is either no tracheostomy for the operation or the child had a tracheostomy and it was removed during the operation. 
So then how do you support your reconstruction? Well, if you do an anterior graft alone, you sometimes don't need to support it at all. You can extubate the child on the table or the following day and just be done. Um, but with more extensive reconstructions, uh, children where you're worried about the reconstruction because of edema or poor vasculature, uh, or if you do a posterior graft, you're going to want to support that. And in that case, for a single stage operation, because there's no tracheostomy, typically we'll place an endotracheal tube, commonly a nasotracheal tube, that sits through the reconstruction and acts as a stent. Um, what's the drawback there with a the single stage operation? The drawbacks are a few, right? The first is that you have to really trust your ICU. If the child extubates inadvertently, you have to trust the ICU not to just try to ram a tube back in and to stay calm and maintain the child till you can assess them. Uh, so there's less of a safety net. Uh, another issue is that it, the time that you can leave that tube in is really limited because most children require some degree of sedation with this, uh, especially the younger ones. And you can't really justify doing that for more than 10 to 14 days. So your other option is what's called a double stage surgery. And that's where you have a tracheostomy either coming in or when you leave the operating room, uh, you leave with a tracheostomy. And above the stoma, you have what's called a suprastomal stent that sits from the bottom of the, of the reconstruction above the stoma up through the glottis and kind of holds everything together from the inside. Um, the advantage there is that you can leave that stent in for a prolonged period of time, months at a time if needed for the really complex, challenging reconstructions that need time to heal. But the drawback is the child is going to be tracheostomy dependent during that time. However, they can go home with the stent. They don't have to live in the hospital. Uh, for that whole time, they don't require sedation. They can eat by mouth uh, more easily, though the stent can cause some dysphagia. All right. And then moving on to a third option, I would say, is excision of the area. Can you talk a little bit about resection of the subglottic stenosis and the different procedures that you can do for that? Yeah. So cricotracheal resection is the standard. Um, the true name of that should be partial cricotracheal resection, where you resect the anterior half or anterior two-thirds of the cricoid cartilage along with the extension of the stenosis into the trachea if there is any. Uh, and then you do a thyrotracheal anastomosis where you sew the distal tracheal stump up to the thyroid cartilage to reestablish airway continuity. Uh, this tends to work best for the more severe stenosis, so the grade three or four. Uh, however, in order to do this, you need to have at least a small cuff of relatively normal airway to sew to under the vocal cords most people would say three to five millimeters. If you get much closer than that, you're sewing really to the undersurface of the cords and that can induce glottic stenosis and compromise the voice as well. The reason you don't resect the entire cricoid with this is that A, you'll destabilize the larynx terribly, uh, and B, there is risk to the recurrent laryngeal nerves as you resect closer to the cricoid, uh, cricothyroid joint. So this can work very well for the more severe stenoses as long as you have that small cuff to sew to. Um, it is limited really by the length of the stenosis. If the stenosis is more than, let's say, a quarter to a third of the airway length totally uh, down to the carina, then it's very hard to reestablish that anastomosis uh, without tension. Um, and similarly, if you're too close to the uh, glottis, especially at the anterior commissure, uh, then you're limited and you have to think about doing a graft instead, even for the more severe stenoses. If you have involvement of the posterior Glottis, on the other hand, you can do what's called an extended cricotracheal resection, where you resect the anterior cricoid, do a posterior cricoid split, put a graft in there to expand the posterior glottis, and then do your anastomosis. So now that we've talked about all these different options, is there a quick algorithm or 
way that you think about these patients when determining the best surgical approach for each of them? It's, um, yes. So really the things to think about is one, what's the age and overall health of the patient? If they're very young, for instance, cricotracheal resection may not work as well. Uh, If they're very unhealthy or they have other reasons to need a tracheostomy, then a double stage operation may be better than a single stage operation. If the and then it's about the the actual details of the stenosis. So if it's a very long stenosis that's too long to resect, then a resection operation is a bad idea. If it's a very severe stenosis, then maybe a resection is a little bit better than a graft operation or an expansion operation, but that would be trumped by those length considerations. And then. Uh, single versus double stage, you're really thinking again about those factors we talked about earlier, about how much of a safety net do you need? What setting is this child going to be in? Are they going to tolerate sedation? And so on. Excellent. So just briefly touching on post-surgical management of these patients, can you talk about antibiotics, steroids, other considerations that you have when managing them? Yeah. So there's not really any big standardization for this, unfortunately. Um, Here at Stanford, we tend to have a a protocol where we treat with antibiotics um, based on the patient's preoperative flora. So they have MRSA or Pseudomonas, and those definitely have to be covered. Uh, As we get closer to extubation for the single-stage kids or stent removal for the double-stage kids, we'll also do what's called quad therapy, which is a combination of antibiotic, anti-reflux medication, uh, topical steroids, and oral steroids to minimize granulation and inflammation and facilitate extubation or stent removal. Certainly, if the child has things like EOE or significant reflux, those should be controlled both pre- and post-operatively during the healing period. And then we typically put drains in these kids. Uh, I tend to remove the chest drain at the rib cartilage site if we use that uh, two days post-op, and then the neck drain somewhere between three and seven days, depending on the complexity of the reconstruction. And do these kids ever have to go back to the operating room for a second look? How do you manage them in follow-up? Yeah, that's critical. The second look is an absolutely important piece of this whole protocol. So the single stage kids need to go back for a look and extubation. And typically you're going to do that again, seven to 14 days afterwards, depending on how long you want to keep them intubated to stent that repair. When you extubate them, you might either extubate them in the OR or you might downsize their tube and then send them back up to the ICU for extubation, depending on the situation. Uh, For the kids with the double stage operations, they also have to come back for stent removal because that's a small operative procedure as well as subsequent uh, procedures to get rid of the tracheostomy and and make sure they're ready to decannulate. All of these kids, single or double stage, need interval endoscopies over time to make sure A, that they continue to heal and not restenose, and B, that their reconstructed airway continues to grow with them as their somatic growth uh, proceeds. Dr. Balakrishnan, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, thank you, Alyssa. This was great. Um, the only thing I'd like to add otherwise is just to consider that decision-making for airway patients and optimizing their outcomes really matters uh, when you consider the whole patient. You have to consider not just their airway, but everything that's going on around them uh, in their body. And so um, a lot of these children will go through a multidisciplinary care process, often through um formal structured aerodigestive program to make sure, for instance, that their pulmonary and GI status is optimized before we proceed with reconstruction. And I just think that's an important consideration here. Uh, The other thing to consider is that um, I think it's really important to think about outcomes in a standardized way, and that's improving over time. As we study this more, we're actually understanding what are the important outcomes beyond just simple things like decannulation and mortality. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. So in summary, 
Pediatric patients with subglottic stenosis typically present with strider and varying levels of respiratory distress depending on the degree of stenosis and the etiology. Etiologies include iatrogenic, 90% of which are due to endotracheal intubation, as well as congenital and other less common lesions such as subglottic hemangioma and subglottic cyst. Key components to the history include previous intubations and recurrent respiratory infections. In the clinic, you want to evaluate the overall patient, including the respiratory status, as well as listen to their heart and lungs. You want to perform a flexible laryngoscopy to determine if there's any other laryngeal or upper airway anomalies at play. Surgical evaluation is crucial for diagnosis, as well as grading of the degree of stenosis. Management includes conservative measures for patients with mild stenosis, and then surgical innervation for patients with moderate or severe stenosis. Surgical intervention can be endoscopic or open, depending on the degree and location, as well as the length of the stenosis. You should be considering the age of the patient, as well as their overall health. I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. The first question is, what is the pathophysiologic mechanism by which subglottic stenosis occurs in an intubated pediatric patient? So the presence of an endotracheal tube has to do with pressure necrosis. The pressure that's applied from the cuff on the endotracheal tube, if it is greater than the pressure of the blood supply to the submucosa and mucosa, you can have pressure necrosis, which leads to mucosal edema and ulceration, which will eventually lead to interruption of normal ciliary flow, and then eventual ulceration and granulation, as well as deposition of fibrous tissue in the submucosa. The second question is, what are the two most important factors to consider in an intubated patient to help prevent subglottic stenosis from developing? The two most important factors to consider are the size of the endotracheal tube as well as the length of intubation. The third question is, how is subglottic stenosis graded and what formula is used to calculate the age-appropriate endotracheal tube size? So the grading system that we use is the Meyer-Cotton grading system, which is grades one through grade four, where grade one is the most mild stenosis and grade four is the most severe. Grade one is defined as less than 50% of stenosis. Grade two is 51 to 70%. Grade three is 71 to 99%. And then grade four is complete obstruction where there's no lumen. Appropriate airway sizing is calculated using the formula age divided by four plus four. So for example, a child that is four years old would have an appropriate endotracheal tube size of a five cuffless tube. Thanks so much for joining and we'll see you next time.